Hey, welcome back to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Dan Shapir. Hi, from a really warm and really sunny Tel Aviv, even though I'm feeling a bit under the weather. So I apologize to our audience in advance. I'll try to hold on to the very end. But if I don't, my apologies. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. Yeah, I hope Dan sticks around. Um, we have a special guest this week, and that's Evyatar Alush. Did I say that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, perfect. Do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Let people know who you are and why you're famous? Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Avatar. I'm super happy to be here. Um, I'm an engineer here at Meta in Tel Aviv, also Tel Aviv. Um, I'm passionate about open source development, developer tooling, API design. And I work on a bunch of open source projects like Vest, the validations framework, and a few others as well. I also, I'm also a public speaker. I speak at different conferences all over the world. Um, and again, super awesome to be here. Nice. Yeah, I, I have to say that I recently, relatively recently, met Eviatar at uh, the React Next conference where we happened to speak one versus the other. <laughs> So I couldn't actually attend his talk because I was give, busy giving mine at the same time. But I did watch the video of, of his talk afterwards. It's highly recommended. I think you spoke about implementing your own context library or implementation uh, for React, right? Like how context actually works on the inside, kind of. Yes. Yeah, so it was almost not for React, but for general use JavaScript. So if you could take the concepts and ideas for the React context and use it outside of React, because if you have a function that calls a function, calls a function, and you don't want to drill all the arguments all the way down, how you could implement that with vanilla JavaScript without using React at all? Yeah, I thought that it was really cool. It's kind of like a segmented global or something like that, right? It's like a global where you only see that part that you're interested in and not like exposed to everything. Yeah, exactly. Only that you do not pollute the global scope. It's all within uh, a single closure uh, that only you have access to within the current uh, call stack. So that's a cool idea. Very cool. So... um... I guess we're going to be talking about Vest today. I have to say Mm -hmm. that I've kind of looked through some of the docs on here and it looks cool, but do you want to kind of give people a a top-level idea of what it is and what problems it solves for people and then we can dive into how it works? Yeah, definitely. So Vest is a form validations framework. uh, Not very unlike, not much unlike uh, many of the other frameworks you've used. Uh, only that it adopts the syntax and style of unit testing libraries like Mocha or Jest, hence the name, Vest. And the concept is that you can describe your form and form validations as a suite of tests, and each of the tests gets its own field, or sorry, each of the field, uh, each of the fields gets its own test, or you can have multiple tests for a single field. And this way, it makes it very easy to read, very easy to understand, also it very easy to write. And when you come back to maintain it in the future, uh, it's all separated from, uh, from your feature logic, so it's really also easy to maintain. Uh, this is the core concept, but it comes with many, many other utilities and capabilities. Um, it is stateful, so it manages a lot of the heuristics of validation and many of the difficult parts of validations for you. 
Um, so this is something we can uh, touch a little later on. To give our listeners an idea of how it looks like, and again, obviously that's kind of challenging in a podcast, uh, think about, like you said, like a jest or something, but instead of it, you write the word test, otherwise it kind of looks the same. And instead of, uh, uh, what's it, uh, yeah, expect, you use the word enforce to state that you enforce that a particular field meets a particular criteria and it can be enforce something dot is not blank to indicate that the field must not be blank. Exactly. And like you said, it's, it's super familiar and super obvious in terms of the, the syntax and even semantics for anybody who's familiar with the common uh, testing libraries for, for JavaScript. Yeah, the syntax looked pretty familiar to me, just getting in and going, oh, okay. So the idea is that you can build on your exi- uh, build up on the existing knowledge of the users. So uh, many of the users, especially today, or many of the developers uh, today, already have some experience with unit testing libraries. So it makes very much sense uh, to use that existing knowledge to describe something that, in general, I think is very similar to unit testing, uh, validate or sorry, that is very similar to unit testing because in validation, you basically have a set of criteria that you want your data um, to pass, and this is the same as unit testing and validation. Mm-hmm. So the idea is to build up on that ex- existing knowledge. So given that AJ isn't here, I'm going to start <laughs> with a contrarian question. Course, <laughs> kind of take AJ's place. Um, and my question is this on the client side, because I assume you can run the validation on both the client side and the server side, but I'm going to start with asking specifically about the client side. On the client side, why do I even need JavaScript based validation and not just rely on the, you know, build, on the validation that's built into the HTML? What used to be known as HTML5. Yeah, so HTML, especially HTML5, um, improved a lot in terms of what it allows you to do and in terms of the validation capabilities uh, that you have. But it still lacks in many different areas. And I think this is an argument we've had on Twitter like four years ago, Dan. Um, I don't know if you remember. Uh, And you said the same thing. (laughs) Um, there was a week when everybody talked about form validation and why the uh, why uh, why people actually need to use form validation libraries when they have the HTML5 uh, validation capabilities, and I think that while very much better than what it used to be in the past, it is still lacking in many areas, and we still need to augment the capabilities of the of the HTML form uh, in order to receive more benefits and more capabilities. Uh, that we do not yet have. For example, when we want to validate fields that depend on different fields, uh, for example, when we want to validate password uh, confirmation, this is something that's very difficult to do with the uh, built-in form validation that we have in HTML. And when you want to do something that may show you a validation error, but is not really a validation failure, such as password strength, this is also something that's very difficult to do with native HTML format. And I do not say that this is strictly impossible, but it is something that's more difficult to do. Now, on top of that, 
there are many stuff that you want to do with your form, like have a special display, and you don't uh, actually want to use the normal or native HTML capabilities just to display the errors. You want to have some other way to manage that. And on top of that all, if you want to share your validations logic between your server and the client, then it makes a lot of sense to actually have a separate library that manages uh, that manages that for you. Yeah, I think that this is really an important point and probably an obvious one for experienced developers, but may not be that obvious for inexperienced developers. And that the fact that just you having client-side validation is obviously <laughs> not enough. Uh, you you have to validate the data on the server side because you know who knows what the client might send. Uh, you know, you might think it's your web interface, but when in fact it's some bot just doing a form submit, uh, an HTTP post even, and, uh, and you know, who knows what, and, and, and that way injections go. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, you definitely want to validate your data on the server side before, you know, putting it in the database or whatever. Uh, and like you said, obviously having the exact same code on both sides makes a ton of sense because, you know, you only need to, you know, write it once, ensure mm-hmm. that it works once. And mm-hmm. obviously you want to catch exactly the same errors on the client side for quick response on the server side for actual correctness and security. Yeah, um, it's it's interesting talking about it in that sense because in my, you know, my experience, I'm mostly doing Ruby on the back end and JavaScript on the front end. And so I can't write, I can't use the same validation on both ends without writing it twice. And so I kind of like that it's, how do I put it? Um, it's, it, it moves between the two pretty easily, right? You don't have to do a whole lot of extra work to use it on the front end and on the back end if they're both JavaScript applications. And so, I mean, that in and of itself kind of lends to some pretty nice reusability. Now, again, a few more questions about how it's used, again, for our audience. Um, In a regular testing library, you run a test, and if a test fails, you basically stop and, you know, output the the error or errors and then, you know, fail the test. What what is the return value? How do you like? How do you indicate the su- success versus failure? I guess mm-hmm. you invoke a validation function on passing in the form data in some way. Maybe we can touch about how you pass in the form data as well. But then, how how do you get either the the indication of success or failure? Yeah, definitely. So just to clarify. Um, or just to add, up, uh, add on top of what you just said, uh, when in a unit test library, when you fail, uh, you do not just stop. You run all of the tests and oh, yeah, then dis- yeah. Um, and this is pretty much the same with uh, Vest. Also, uh, with just one difference that if you have multiple tests for a single field and the first one fails, there is no need to continue to the next validations of the same field because the first one already fails usually there is no need uh, to run multiple tests if the first one already failed. Now, what you get back once you run your form validation with BEST is just an object, a results object that contains a serialized result 
of the validation. So it has the list of tests that just passed or failed, or if they have any warnings instead of failures. Uh, it has the groups because you can nest tests within groups. And it has uh, all the metrics and statistics that you need in order to infer your result from that. But also it has multiple selector functions. So it has a function called get errors, and it returns you a list of errors either for the entire suite or for a given field, depending on whether you pass in the, uh, the field name or not. And like that, it has also a function called is valid and it returns you a Boolean uh, if a given field or the suite itself is valid or not valid. And the same, uh, it gives you uh, a function called has errors and has warnings that works pretty much the same. So it has a bunch of functions that does all the magic for you in terms of understanding the meaning of these values that you get back from the validation result. What's the difference between an error and a warning? Oh, okay. I, I thought you were going to ask what's different between error and invalid, which is a bigger ah. difference. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. I um, missed that. Because, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a more interesting one uh, because apparently having an error does not mean invalid necessarily or not being valid does not mean having errors. So... We'll touch on that, I think, uh, later. But in terms of a warning or an error, uh, we need to distinguish between two types of failures in our validation suite. So a failure uh, normally has an error severity, which means that when it fails, it just prevents form submission. This means we cannot continue. This is a critical failure in our data. But sometimes we have also data or tasks that we may allow it to fail, uh, but we do want to indicate something to the user. And the, the intention behind VEST is to allow you, as the developer, not to just write your validation logic in one place, but also specify the messages that the user would get in the same place. So when you want to specify a warning test, for example, password strength, um, when you type in a weak password, uh, the the website may allow you to continue and show that uh, and continue with that um, bad password or weak password, mm -hmm. but it does want to show you that. So you can specify a test that is warning only, and then Vest takes this test and puts it in a different basket within the results. You may still view it, you may still show it to the user, but it does not uh, set the uh, the form validation to invalid. So this is the difference between error and warning in the for, in the in the context of form validation. That and how sense. about uh, error versus invalid? Yes. That's an interesting one, mm -hmm. I think. Because for the first three years of VEST, I think, I did not even even have a notion of invalid in VEST because I did not have the correct heuristics of how to describe what is valid or what is invalid. Because I had some mental logic uh, missing in there. But generally, for example, when you take in a form uh, without any data in it, it's still not valid. So invalid is false, but it has no errors inside. So a form can be without any errors at all, but still be invalid. Um, and this is the main difference. We need to uh, distinguish between these two stages. A form has errors and the form is invalid. And VEST allows you to actually distinguish between the two and adding on top of that, uh, if you want to consider the idea of optional fields, of course, which is a field that may not even be filled, 
or it might sometimes uh, even an, even have an error, but still allow the form to continue uh, because on some criteria and option fields are allowed to fail. For example, when you have one field that, um, for example, you have to specify either a password, uh, either an email or a phone number, just, just as an example, when signing up, you may fail. Um, the the email, email field may be empty, but so it's failing, it has errors inside, but you may still be valid. So this is an example. It's not a warning. Otherwise, if, they, uh, if the phone number field was empty, it, both of them would have failed, but because it's an optional, conditionally optional, you may continue. Now, I have a question about that that kind of goes to the heart of, uh, of open source software, I guess. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, you said you had a certain mental model that, that initially the concept of, of invalid as opposed to error didn't exist. And then at a certain point in time, you realized that you needed to make this, distinct, this distinction and you introduced it into the library. Was this the result of your own thought processes and understandings or did one of your, you know, did the library user or users, you know, reach out to you and say, hey, you know, we need to make this kind of a distinction. It's missing. And then you you thought about it and, and you know, oh, no, these guys are actually correct. Or maybe even somebody, you know, forked it and did a PR or something. So how did, you know, what's the process that you, you that, you know, happened to you with this library about adding features and, and capabilities and, and shifting the mental model? Awesome question. Um, this is something, I, I would say, a mixture of all that you just said uh, without the PR part. Um, basically, from the get-go, I knew that I am missing the concepts and the stuff missing to define logically the idea of what, an, uh, what a valid or invalid field is. I knew that from the get-go, I knew that valid or sorry, invalid does not mean, or sorry, not valid does not mean invalid, but else, but I wasn't able to articulate what valid actually meant. Only that not valid is not necessarily invalid. That's, I knew. And what I decided to do is to postpone the decision because with my own personal use cases at work, I do not experience the need of implementing is valid yet. And I waited for the community to actually bring up the topic. And what happened is that over time, when the library grew in popularity, uh, people came with requests that I knew were somehow related to the concept of validity um, in the world of optional fields, which were also missing in the beginning. We only had errors and warnings. And when they came with a request for specific or specifications of optional fields, and when we would define together, uh, both on Discord and on GitHub issues, the specification for optional fields, only then I was able to build the mental model for validity. So it was all tied together. Um, it was both a personal mental process and a community uh, uh, process. Cool. Now, when, mm-hmm. when you say optional fields, what are you talking about there? Yeah. So... In, me, in most of the validation libraries and form validation libraries, fields are re, uh, optional by default and you have to specify they're required. Oh, Best okay. goes the other way around, which means all fields, unless, unless specified, are required. 
all tests have to pass unless you specify that a form or a specific field is not required. Because usually when you type in a form, you want all the fields to pass, otherwise not. But you have right. to specifically say that. That's what I and that's what I see as more natural. And when I specify when that a field is optional, by default, an optional field on Vest, because Vest is unaware of your internal business logic, it means that the field did not go through validation. It's not means it does not mean that a field is empty. It means that Vest did not go through into validating it. And why it happened? Because the user did not type inside of it. The user did not type inside the username, for example. And that means that it never went through any validation process because not on every keystroke you validate all the fields. But sometimes this is not enough. As I mentioned, sometimes you have fields that depend on one another or um, mutually exclusive fields. So sometimes you have to also tell Vest, hey, this field, this uh, email field is only optional and you need to omit it from any result when the other field is already filled, when the other field is already filled up. So for example, you can tell Vest, hey, this uh, password, uh, this email p- uh, field is optional when the phone number field is filled up. Um, so there are two types of optional fields, either automatically when Vest tries to understand what is optional by whether it was already uh, typed in by the user or not, or if you tell it, hey, this field, you should just omit it and it's optional. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned a couple of uh, minutes ago that uh, the test mechanism is stateful. Can mm-hmm. you elaborate on, on what you mean by that? Yes, definitely. So in order to allow you better ergonomics or to give you better ergonomics, Vest maintains an internal state of the validation. And what I noticed is that the initial versions of Vest were not stateful, which meant that you typed in a field and Vest would validate one field, and then I would have to keep the validation result and the validation errors outside in an external state. And then when I would type in into a different field, I would have to do it again and save it in React or View or Angular or where, wherever. And what I decided to do in version Why 3 not? of Vest... Question, mm-hmm. A quick question. Why not just revalidate everything? Is it because some of the tests are too expensive? Uh, it's not because sometimes yes, but that's not the reason. And you know the pesky feeling when you type inside one field inside the form, and for example inside the username, suddenly the whole field lights up like it's Christmas. Um, so I was trying to avoid that. Best allows you to only validate the field the user is currently interacting with, which means that whenever you type inside a field, you only run the validations for that one. And what happens internally is that when Best and this is in the current versions and the next ones as well, and I'm currently working on a future version of Vest, uh, ver- major version number five. So inside Vest, when you type inside a field and it validates that field, next time you type inside a different field, it's not going to revalidate that field and it's also not going to omit the previous results. What it's going to do is take in, merge the previous validation results with the next validation results what's going on at the moment. And then you're going to both save up on performance. And for the client, maybe it's not very important, but when you run it for on, on the server, for example, it might be very beneficial. Or when you have async validations, that's also very beneficial. 
And that's what, uh, when you get very smooth and very fast and very performant experience, and Vest tries to do a lot of the smarts for you. You kind of uh, segued already into what would have been my next or follow-up question, oh. which is how do you handle asynchronous validation or can you handle asynchronous validation, which based on your answer, I gather the, the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Can you tell us what you mean by asynchronous validation? So yeah, when you want to run an asynchronous validation, so for example, when you type in uh, inside a field and you want to get some validation results from an external source like your server or from an extensive computation that's done inside of uh, a web worker, for example, you want to run an async validation, one that does not stop the validation from running uh, and does not pre- uh, prevent you from getting the immediate result. And what you do to allow that is specify the function, the test function as async or instead return a promise. So pretty much the same thing as you would do in a unit testing libraries, again, trying to build upon and extend on uh, existing knowledge. And if the promise rejects or if the async test throws an error, then uh, the, the test is considered to be failing. Okay, so I can imagine, for example, if you have a validation where it's, hey, the username has to be unique, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're validating on the front end, an asynchronous validation would be, I've got to go ask the server if it's in the database already. Exactly. Yeah, you kind of remind me of the time that I proposed to a large company that I worked at, that after they changed the password policy yet again, that they require that not only that your password will be unique compared to all your previous passwords, also that it will be unique compared to the passwords of all other users in the, in the system. <laughs> so that your password will not match the password that any of the other users ever had. <laughs> I, I, can, I can type the word password with a lot of different leet numbers in them. No, obviously I was joking. I mean, <laughs> I mean, no. yeah. Huh. Yeah, you know, like compare your password to my password to your old password. You know? Right. Yeah. Uh, obviously, that's silly. But um, but be that well, as it yeah. may. Uh, be that as it may. Um, how, like, um, and that kind of also segues into an, another question that I uh, that I will have in a bit. But how did you adjust the APIs to be uh, flexible? for a synchronicity. Like I see that in the uh, test uh, function, again, which correlates to the it in testing libraries, you can pass in an asynchronous function, which kind of indicates that I'm going to do uh, an asynchronous test on that field. But doesn't that also mean that in the return structure, rather than returning a value, I need to return a, a, a promise? So how like, how did you like deal with these things where in some cases things are values and in other cases are promises? I know that there are certain libraries that deal with it by making everything a promise, but that may, might be like too uncomfortable in your scenario because in your scenario, most things would be, would be just values rather than promises and forcing everything to be a promise might be a, like a too big a pill to swallow. So how did you deal with that? Yeah, 
Um, exactly. I, I agree about the about that being uncomfortable. And this is an interesting question because not only it required an API change, uh, but it also required um, some internal flexibility of the design and some uh, clever uses of promises and uh, the statefulness of VEST. And the way it's done, and for the same reasons you said, you want most of the validations to appear on the page immediately and only wait for the async stuff. So what you do is when you get the validation results, so you get a validation object, a result object directly from best, um, or when you call the suite function, um, you can dangle a done at the end of it, a done call, which is very similar to a then only just to make sure that you don't think it's a denable, um, meaning that it's a promise. Um, it gives you, it allows you to chain a done function when and when this function is done running or when the validation is done running, then you can uh, run whatever it is that you want inside of it as well, inside the done callback, uh, which in your scenario would be to update the view um, or to change the state of your UI. Why not make it thenable? Is it because it, in, it has additional fields that you don't expect to see on a promise? Why, why did you introduce that done uh, method as opposed to just using then? So mostly that, because I, I could extend the promise or I could make it thenable or build my own abstraction of a promise, uh, but I did, I, I did not know uh, what libraries people use, what interfaces they have, what runtimes they run. And I did not want to make any mistakes on that area. Now, usually it would have worked, but I've already seen like weird cases when people used Vest on a television OS and suddenly stuff uh, started to break. So I wanted to try to extend as little as I could the native APIs and the built-in functions and try to Make it as li- uh, make it as less customized as possible in terms of extensions. I get what you're saying, and and um, you know, obviously, you have much more experience with that li- with this library than I do. Basically, I don't have any experience with it. <laughs> mm-hmm. But but um, my natural my basic instinct would be, if at all possible, to make it a thenable, if for no other reason that making it thenable means that you kind of automatically out of the box work with so much built-in browser uh, JavaScript capabilities and APIs. Like if you're thenable, then await works for you, uh, promise all works for you. There, there's like a ton of stuff that just works if you're thenable. And by the way, for listeners, just so, you know, in case somebody doesn't know, a thenable is simply an object that has a then method. That's right. it. And oh, and that then method takes a function as an argument, which is the function that gets executed when the object resolves. Um, and for a lot of JavaScript APIs, you know, where you pass in promises, they don't actually like check that this is really a promise. All that they really look for is a, a then method. And if it has a then method, then it's good enough for them. And they can deal with your own like custom implementation rather than a real quote unquote promise, you know, just if you have the appropriate then method implemented. Yeah. Um, so 
I, I completely agree with that. Um, and I do love uh, the duct typing area of that. Um, mm-hmm. But one more feature that uh, having that done function allowed me to do or to, to build was um, conditionals inside of that done function or mm-hmm. selectors. So for example, let's say you have 10 different asynchronous fields, like one for the username and one for the password and one for the email, and they all run at the same time uh, because now I'm validating on submit. And I can uh, add another argument before the done callback, which is the field name, the, the, the field that I want to run that callback for. And this means that whenever that field is done, do not wait for the others, but whenever that field is done, when the username field is done, run that callback. And I can chain as many done functions as I want. So I can run one for the uh, username field and one for the password field. And this is not just, uh, this is not just as a, prox- as a promise, Jim, but actually a feature that this, uh, this change allowed me to do. So it's kind of like an R, similar to like the RxJS approach that it's it's it looks it's chainable, it's quote unquote mm-hmm. asynchronous, but it's not promises. Yeah, I have a couple of questions on this as well. Um, one of them is, so sometimes it's hey, I need the usernames to behave this way, right? And sometimes mm-hmm. I have a field in my form that's like. It's just like, I know it's a proper name, like a first name or a last name or a full name, right? And so maybe I, I'm collecting that over and over and over again, you know, maybe with fields that are called different things. So can I create some kind of modular validation that I can add to fields? So for example, I know that cities, states, uh, first names, last names all need to be capitalized, right? They're all mm-hmm. going to have um, alphabetical, you know, maybe a period or a dash in them, you know, that kind of a thing. So can I create those and then just say, hey, uh, apply these generic validations to these specific fields? So it's basically you're asking about composition of validation. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, And this is not a part of VEST itself, um, but VEST is really built uh, from six or seven packages that I created one of them is called Enforce, N4S um, on NPM. And this is the assertion library for VEST. And what it allows you to do is do multiple things. One, it allows you to create your own custom validations and just do enforce.extend and write whatever function that you want and it will be added to the Enforce library. So you can do enforce mm-hmm. um, data.city and then whatever it is that you want is a proper city name. I don't know. Um, but also, Enforce is much more stronger than that. And it also has um, both schema validation library uh, library capabilities and also uh, composition capabilities. So you, have, you can have um, Enforce rules. They are called rules, each of the functions that's chainable within Enforce. You can have rules that consume rules, that consume rules, or run multiple uh, rules within them. So you can have a uh, rule composition within Enforce. So whatever it is that you say can be a predefined um, composition of rules that's written with Enforce. And uh, yeah, I'm assuming that that's in the documentation somewhere in the on the page. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Took me a lot of time to write this documentation for this. Right. 
Yeah, the documentation's actually been pretty good. I've been uh, kind of uh, ducking through it a little bit. So the other question that I have, and I think we've kind of flirted with some parts of this, but um, a lot of people are using frameworks on the front end and on the back end, right? So maybe I have Express on the back end and then, you know, Nest uh, and Next.js or Nux.js or something like that, you know, where, you know, I'm using React or Vue. Um, so so how does how does this fit into that? Um, perfectly. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, Vest works um, on the server. You have just one drawback that you need to remember, and it's just one thing to solve um, and remember when you work with Vest on the server. You do not run your um, validation suite normally. As I mentioned, your validation suite is stateful, which means that if you run it on the server on multiple requests, each time you run it, it will contain some or bits or parts of the validation of the previous user uh, that was validated through it. So all you have to do is just use a helper function that I created that's also a part of VEST, which is called static suite, which is pretty much like the normal suite function, only that on each run, it generates a new suite instance, a new suite state, and does not retain it between the runs. So this is the only change that you have to make if you run it on the server. Other than that, you can use the same validation function. By the way, I, I, we didn't mention it before, and I wanted to point it out. This uh, library, you know, it has uh, over 2,000 stars on GitHub. So I see that it is actually a pretty popular library. Good for you. Thank you. Thank you. Been working hard on it. How long have you been working on it? With different iterations over seven years. So I started working on a predecessor to Vest uh, when I worked at Fiverr, um, another Israeli mm -hmm. company. Um, and when I was there, I worked on a framework or a library. It was a library back then. It was called Passable. Uh, and when I left the company, I wanted to take uh, Passable with me. And I wrote it from scratch as Vest and gave it all the stateful capabilities and everything that it is today um, and managed to grow it to these um, 2K stars that it is now. And you're doing all of this in, on your own free time, as it were? Yeah. yeah, own time. So this is totally a labor of love. This is like not something that's being sponsored by, by Meta, your current employer right. or anything like that. Correct, correct. This is my playground. Um, this is my place where I can actually uh, learn new technologies. So I wanted to play with proxies and this allowed me to create Enforce, which is an infinitely chainable valid uh, assertion library, uh, which is something that's very good to use proxies with. This yeah. is an example. So mm -hmm. everything I want to learn, I try to somehow implement into the library, not forcing it into the library, but actually trying to find the correct place to put it, uh, if it makes sense. Still, you know, with with life, uh, it's kind of challenging, isn't it, to find the time outside work, outside your own, you know, personal, you know, things that you want to do to actually maintain a library like this, like, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, I try to give it a few hours a week. Um, and actually, at the moment, I've been working on the next major uh, version 5 for the past 11 months. And this has been uh, really difficult um, to actually integrate it with my day-to-day uh, -day life and work. 
but since this is something I'm very passionate about, um, I have to find the time for it. Yeah, I just also wanted to point out, and because this is something that I, I've been coaching people on lately when, with their careers, is I highly recommend to people that they have some kind of uh, project outside of work to work on. Um, a lot of times I'm kind of pointing them more toward a, a fully furnished application that does something that they're interested in, right? Even if it's just, hey, I track ass. I, I actually uh, coached a guy that built a thing that tracked assets for a video game for Diablo 3, I think, right? And it was just all the equipment and stuff, you know, but that was his passion. And so that's what he did. But yeah, what, what you're talking about where it's, hey, this is my sandbox where I can go and I can try new stuff. It, that's one of the things that it really, really helps. And what's fun is that sometimes you learn just as much figuring out that this is a really terrible fit. Right. It's like, oh, okay. I learned all the limitations of this library because those limitations make it not work here. But the flip side is, is you know how it works. And you also, in a lot of cases, learn better what applications it really will shine in. And so I I just, I love the approach. Another option, obviously, is to join an an existing open source project uh, and contribute into it. you, You don't have to invent your own. In fact, in many cases, especially for newbies, joining an existing project has a lot of benefits because uh, you know you you get to make impactful contributions to the community from yeah. relatively an early stage, and you get a lot of feedback and even even potentially mentoring kind of for free. Uh, so so there are advantages to that as well for sure. Oh, um, absolutely. Um, I, I have another question that I wanted to ask you about the library, but I, I want to pull back, as it were, a little bit. So uh, Theo, uh, you know, known as the Theo 3GG, uh, posted a video uh, not so long ago with, like, it had, the, like, the, <laughs> like, so it was so clickbaity, like the title was TypeScript Sucks or something like that. But <laughs> that's not really what the video was about. The video was about the fact that TypeScript rep- is great for people who use libraries, but it places enormous, uh, potentially an enormous uh, burden on library creators. Uh, and with that, I really have to agree with, with Theo's sentiment. Like, for us as library users, TypeScript is great because, you know, we get auto-completion and, you know, it's really easy to use sophisticated APIs and you're much less likely to make stupid mistakes. But if you're creating non-trivial APIs and you try to make them as strict as possible using TypeScript, you know, not just return any, but, you know, be really smart about it, um, it can get very challenging. And I'm thinking specifically about some of your APIs. So, for example, um, like you have, like we talked about, like you have uh, enforce and longer than or equals to indicate that a certain field has at least a certain amount of characters or letters within it. That's really relevant for alphanumeric fields. It's not relevant for numeric fields. So you might try to be smart about it and see whether or not 
the field the field value that's getting passed into the function is uh, a string or a number and then you know only provide that you know autocomplete option for string fields not for numeric fields um so but obviously that makes the typescript that you would need to write in the context of the project much more difficult and and Theo was talking about how they had to invest literally like some kind as much effort potentially in creating the typescript bindings for particular projects as they it you know the effort that they basically put in to implement the actual functionality and also in some cases they actually needed to change their implementation just so that they could create the appropriate typescript binding for it so my question to you i guess is you know how what did you do what do you think about this how did you deal with typescript in this context oh that's um as long as the question was it's also a very <laughs> loaded question um i think okay okay um typescript has been a very challenging thing to deal with working on vest uh begin with vest number version 1 and 2 uh it was not even written in typescript and it was i, I had to write the typings uh, manually after the fact and when migrate migrate into uh version 3 of vest i actually rewrote the library in uh typescript which was a very big challenge and not even that what you just mentioned but think about the infinite chaining of enforce so you say longer than or equals 3 but you can also chain it to is number or is numeric or is not string or is positive or whatever it is that you want and you can infinitely chain it even to your own extended fields uh, or validations that you uh, defined previously and every feature like this uh has been very difficult to implement as a library maintainer um but i do think it also has some upside um obviously it made me a much better typescript developer um i'm now way better uh, in typescript than what i used to be or what an, and i know more many more features than the average average user of typescript even knows existing mm-hmm. uh, just because i had to find all these weird edge cases and and capability of uh, capabilities of typescript that people do not normally need to use um and in a way it also allowed me to better learn um different tools and different libraries like react or jest and stuff like that i remember i think 2 years ago i joined uh react roundup and jack harrington asked me uh if i've looked at the types for jest or if i've looked at the types for react because i borrowed some of the internal apis uh, from them and i told him no i didn't because i didn't think i uh, it, it would help in any way but then right after the podcast i i went and actually looked at how they implemented their typings and i learned a lot both on typescript and react and jest and how they work internally and that improved me as a developer so this is by the way a general tip that i have for people try to look at the codes for uh, the code for the libraries that you use because you may end up learning a lot from that for sure 
So basically, you're saying that you became an expert in TypeScript uh, generics? Oh, oh my God. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, would say, I would say that I, I've seen um, way too many deeply nested generics in the past year, uh, and I do not want to see any more generics ever again. That's it. <laughs> you know, I, I totally get it. I mean, you know, you mentioned before about how you used proxy in JavaScript to support chaining. And that's yes. like the ultimate freedom. You can literally, you know, dynamically at runtime decide how to chain whatever you want to chain and what's, you know, what to add and what not to add and, and so forth. But with TypeScript, you need to somehow express all of this statically so that it can be handled in, in compile time. So it's, it's really amusing how the actual implementation is relatively easy and straightforward, but coming up with the type system that actually expresses this and provides some type safety, again, not just making everything any, uh, is really difficult and challenging to do, potentially much more than the actual code. Uh, yes, exactly. I just added, pasted in the chat just um, for you to see um, what it is that I actually had to do uh, to make that what you just described happen. And this is like, this was one of the more challenging aspects of VEST to, uh, to actually type because proxies are the ultimate freedom, as you said, and infinite chaining means you're completely dynamic in the way you do stuff. And yet I was able to type that with TypeScript. But um, I, I, I think I lost a few years due to that. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it, it seems like in a lot of cases that I see in TypeScript, some of the types are pretty obvious what they are. But yeah, some of them, especially as you get more generic, they get really tough. Yeah, but that's, but that's the key point. And that's also the point that Theo was making is that the difficulty is squarely on the shoulders of the library maintainer. Oh, I mean, for totally. The, for the, for yeah. the library users, they just benefit, you know, for them, you know, if they, yeah. if they just get errors at code time that otherwise they might have only gotten at runtime, if that. Uh, and, and for them, it's really simple. They're just using basic types. They don't need to yeah. deal with generics. It's all done for them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, VS Code users... just magically knows what I'm dealing with. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, and the, the users do not know how many tears, are, tears I've shed uh, over this <laughs> one. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, again, uh, it's a product of love. Well, well, we'll have somebody get you a teddy bear you can hug while you're working on TypeScript. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. So you said that you were working on best uh, version five. Currently, it's version four. Obviously, like what's what are the big things? Like what's driving this new major version? Yeah. So two things. Actually, it's it's getting to be more than two things. Um, but the initial incentive for building vest version five was to switch a few of the defaults. It was to make vest a little more performant by avoiding doing stuff that VEST does not need to do or you usually do not care for as a user or as a developer. For example, making it so that VEST will stop validating a failing field right after the first test instead of running all the failing fields or running all the fields for a given test 
even if they, it already knows that a single field is failing. So it was initially about switching some of the defaults and making it so that it will be simpler and re require you to do less in order to re uh, receive more beneficial and more performant validations. But apart from that comes a very big um, infrastructure update inside. And it's mostly about how the data flows within VEST. And I try to imagine that as like adding an elevator to a building after the fact. So VEST version number four had a data flow that was patched in from the outside. So it, the library was working as a stateless validation library and I tried to add some state into it. So I patched like the elevator to the outside of the building. And you know those buildings when you have the outside shaft and you see everything outside. Um, so VEST number four, version four was just like that. And the data was working, but I had to hack around it in order to make the library stateful. And in VEST version number five, what I'm doing is basically building the entire building around the elevator shaft. So the entire runtime of the library is running around the data flow. So when you go into the validation and the way you end out is without any hacks, without any magic, without any tricks, it just works as if the data is in the place where, it's, where it belongs. So when do we get it? Hopefully. Going back to the, I spent a bunch of tears on this and you just get it for free. <laughs> Yeah, hopefully within a month. Um, but I've been saying that for the past five months. Uh, five months, I've been uh, spending the past five months mostly yak shaving, sometimes discovering new ideas and new features. But uh, I think it's uh, it's it's time I'll, I let go. So hopefully within a month, best uh, version five will be out. Nice. I don't know if I have anything else that I'm looking um, to push on. Do you, Dan? Well, oh. you could ask. You could ask the obvious question. Uh, <laughs> you could ask the obvious question: uh, Why the hell to use Vest and not use any other library? Um, which it does beg the question because there are tens of thousands of validation libraries mm -hmm. and some very popular ones like um, Yup and Joy and Zod, which is very popular at the moment, and many other ones. Um, so, why use it? That 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 could be um, like a good final question if you want to. Um, but you don't have to. No, go for it. I, I think it is a good question. The The thing that, or the, I guess the reason I didn't go there is because a lot of times there are a, just a ton of options and it's just down to, hey, I like the approach on this. But I mean, beyond sort of the obvious way that you create the validations and uh, the familiarity that you have with uh, you know, something like Jest or, you know, some of the testing libraries. Yeah, are there are there other reasons to use Vest that that I'm just not seeing? Um, well, yes, most of it is around the syntax, but I think the more important thing is around the structure, which means that when you run your form validation, um, there are three main challenges one of them is the structure. You don't know where to put your stuff. By the way, am I answering the question or? Yeah, uh, answer the question. Yeah. Okay. So I think the reason to use VEST, um, and by the way, I would say there are, I'd say there are three different types of form validation libraries. Um, 
One is the functional measures, I would say, Validator.js, which are perfect at what they do and they are very specialized tools. Functions that tell you whether a value is a number, is an email, um, they tell you if it's a URL, and they give you a Boolean response. And they are very good, but they lack structure, which means they put the burden on you to decide how to use them, where to use them, and you keep all the logic within your feature or you still have to make use of that somehow. An extension of that would be schema validation libraries like Zod or Joy or Happy, which are excellent tools, but they are mostly an extension of the functional measures. You have to describe your validation or your uh, form or form data as a shape, as a JSON shape usually, and then you can run validations on it. And while it does give you some structure, it prevents you from having this um, granular approach towards each of the tests. So for example, if you want to have one field that depends on a different field, this is going to be very difficult to work with. You have to have the whole structure within that field. And also it's very hard when you validate user inputs to only validate that single field the user is interacting with so you end up running the validation for the whole uh, for the whole form, and then filter out the results. And it's, from my perspective, it's just not the right tool for the job. I mean, mm -hmm. a great example is is password strength. Um, mm -hmm. You know, password strength is not really something that's part of the schema, uh, and you might right. decide to change yeah. your your password requirements, and that should not count as a schema change. So, so certain things are just not appropriate for schema validators, from my perspective. Yet, they are still highly popular at the moment, uh, even in the client-side world, um, especially with yeah, the third... Because we developers yeah. are lazy. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. um, especially with the third kind of validation libraries, which are not really validation libraries, but more of like form state library-specific uh, state managers like uh, React Hook Form or Formic or Vulidate. These give mm -hmm. you event listeners, they give you components, they give you references that you can put inside your DOM and they manage the form state for you and they manage the validation for you. And the challenge with them is that, well, first of all, you're usually locked into a specific framework. So if I use one for React, I cannot migrate my validations elsewhere. And also, if I want to have some escape hatches and do something that that library specifically does not support, it's very difficult to get away from the clutches of this library because, well, they take over my UI and not just my form validation or logic. And I think that when you deal with form validation, especially, you have three main problems. You have the problem of structures. You do not know where to put the stuff. You do not, uh, do not know where to put the validation. And you usually make it happen by cramming stuff into your feature logic. And then when you come to uh, maintain it months later, you want to add, add another field or make field depend on one another. Then you have to tear apart your feature and re-implement the validation logic if you can even understand what's going on. And the worst part, I think, is testing. It's really hard to test form validation. Because when you try, well, forms are the interaction-heavy parts of our apps. That's where the money comes in. That's where users mm -hmm. click, they toggle, they switch, they type. And this means that 
because these are the interaction heavy parts of our apps and that's where the money comes, that's also where the bugs are more likely to happen because, well, that's where users fiddle with the most. And we do not do enough uh, form validation testing because, well, in order to uh, validate, to test, unit test our forms or form validation, we have to first mock user inputs, then try to see the different combinations and all the data types. And because this is very much UI dependent, it's very hard to test. So I think separating, first of all, form validation from the UI and having a separate structure for it and a very declarative structure that's easy to read, then you can easily maintain it in the future. You can test it because it's only inputs and outputs and you have the full structure for it, there, uh, I think, is where VEST shines. Uh, and this is the difference between VEST and all the rest uh, form validation capabilities. Which basically stems from the fact that it's very declarative, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By the way, I, I also want to make uh, a comment and one that I hope that you agree with. And that is a general comment about JavaScript form validators, which is they're great use them, but don't use them instead of the built-in HTML form validation. Use them on top of the built-in form validation. And as an example, if somebody, something needs, if a field in a form is numeric, give it a type number. Don't give it a type text and then use some form validation to validate that it's actually a number. Um, because it's not only are you leveraging the built-in browser capabilities, which is always a good idea, it's also great in terms of just user experience, for example, for accessibility or, for example, on mobile devices. If the field has a numeric type, then when there's input, when that field is selected, the keyboard, the virtual keyboard, which would be shown to the user, will be an appropriate virtual keyboard. So for example, for a numeric field, it will have just the numbers and not letters. Or if it's an email field, it might have the at symbol, uh, uh, which otherwise might not be there and and stuff like that. So use it on top of the the built-in browser capabilities, not instead of. And I think that was my point in that discussion that you mentioned that we had conversation that we had years ago was the fact that I saw people like people were using form validation as like the example for the various frameworks. And the first thing that they would do is basically disable all the HTML form validation and just implement everything, you know, using whatever framework they were trying to promote. And that really rubbed me the wrong wrong way. Let's put it this way. I, I completely agree with that. Make use of your platform's capabilities. And just to add on top of that, while we're, we are talking about DOM validations or web validations, HTML5 validations, BEST can also be used in other contexts as well. It can be used on Node, as we mentioned. It can be used on Dano. It can be used on React Native, for example. So yes, sure. Do not only rely on VEST for accessibility, for user experience, and for better um, and for better compatibility, always make it accessible and semantic, and use the platform's capabilities, and then augment them with VEST. Sometimes you do not even have JavaScript enabled for some users, and you still want to have validations in place. 
And this is the place where you want to have HTML5 validations and not just JavaScript validations. And, and also related to that, by the way, uh, if your field, for example, is a date field, then rather than using the JavaScript, you looking at the value property of that field and then converting the string to a date, you can use value as date. There's actually a property called value as date on date fields. Likewise, there's a value as number on numeric fields. And this way you get the value in the correct and appropriate type and you don't need to implement your own type conversions. And I've, I found that many, even experienced Java and web developers are simply not familiar with these properties, which is a shame. Sounds good. Well, we are, I, I agree with everything that was said. I just, I'm kind of focused on flow and yeah, we're kind of the point where we need to do picks. So um, before we do that though, um, do we want to just let people know you can go to vestjs.dev, uh, Eviatar. I mean, are there other places that people can go to find you online and share ideas or ask questions? Yeah, I think from vestjs.dev or from my website, com, they can reach me anywhere, pretty much. It also has a list of conferences I'm about to speak at. Uh, I'm on X and I'm on um, Threads. I don't remember my usernames both in either places. Um, it's X You're now, right? Threads. Yeah. Good for yeah. you. Well, <laughs> yeah, I'm on Threads. You kind of have to be. <laughs> <laughs> they they don't force us, but once you're in, you cannot get out. Um, and all yeah, I so know, I'm, all I know that in my about me slide in my talks, I'm running out of space because I've got my Twitter or now X handle. I've got my Mastodon handle. I've got my Blue Sky handle and soon my Threads handle as well. It's like, <laughs> this is too much. Yeah, I usually exactly. just point people to one place, you know, maybe two and yeah, let them know they can find it from there. Um, one thing that I've actually played with doing, just setting up, I own the domain charlesmaxwood.com is just setting it up and saying, hey, all my social links are on here. Anyway, there is this, there is some company I don't remember which whose stock ticker is CMAXW. Oh, really? They must be cool. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's do some picks. Now I'm curious who it is. Dan, what are your picks? Uh, I don't actually have that many picks today. I think, unfortunately. Oh, one pick that I do have is that we watched uh, Oppenheimer, the movie. Uh, and it's, it, it's a long movie. I would also say that it's not a perfect movie. It's even a slightly flawed movie, but it's a really good movie. You might say that it's a flawed person about... A, it's a flawed movie about a flawed person, but also a great movie about a great person. So... So yeah, I in any event, I, I recommend watching it. Do take into account that it's three hours long, but it seemed like uh, time flew while we were watching it. Like we weren't like bored or anything. It's just, you know, it was a long movie because there was a lot to tell. Uh, and uh, and yeah, so I, I recommend it. And no, I haven't watched Barbie yet. So <laughs> Barbieheimer or whatever it's called, it's, it's not for me yet. Um, 
that's really what I have in terms of picks. Oh, yeah, the ongoing war in Ukraine, still ongoing. People still suffering. Please do whatever you can for the people of Ukraine. And those would be my picks for today. Awesome. Um, the CMAX W stock ticker is for CareMax, which is some kind of health portal. Anyway, just just putting it out there because I, I don't know anything about the company other than just what I looked up in two seconds. Um, yeah, I, Oppenheimer looks like a movie that I would enjoy seeing. Um, the Barbie thing, I, I have a seven-year-old daughter and she just, she's into other stuff, so it didn't even come up. And I wasn't going to volunteer to go watch it. So um, anyway, uh, I'm going to throw out my picks here real quick. So I have a couple of friends that I get together with usually on Wednesdays and we play board games. And I think I've mentioned this in the past. Um, But yeah, so uh, this last week we played Risk Legacy. Now, if you've played any of the something legacy games, I think I've played all the Pandemic Legacies. There are a few others out there. Um, You actually modify the game as you play it, right? So at the end of each round, you like add stickers to the board and destroy cards and stuff like that. And this is no different. Um, most of the other legacy games that I've played have been cooperative though. And so you're playing me um, right. And so whatever decisions you make as a group, um, you know, th- those, those impact the next game in this one um, you're playing against each other and whatever modifications you make to the board, somebody else can use in the next game to their advantage. And so uh, anyway, it was it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Uh, probably more fun because I was the one that won this round. So um, I'll just, you know, that, that does make it a good night. Uh, but yeah, we had a good time. Um, I think I might even like it better than regular Risk. Um, but yeah, uh, let me pull up the... I haven't board played Geek on Risk it. in years. We used to play Risk a lot uh, while I was in college. Uh, but I haven't played it in like forever. Yeah, we, I used to play Risk a bunch in high school, um, a bit in college, but mostly with my high school friends. And so I hadn't played it in probably 10 years. And so I had to kind of reacquaint myself with some of the things that were probably Risk rules more than Risk uh, legacy rules. But yeah, it's board game weight of 2.59. So it's it's getting a little bit beyond what kind of the casual gamer would pick up and play, but it's we found it fairly approachable. Of course, we play all kinds of board games. So um, anyway, I'm going to pick that, and then um, let's see what else was I what else was I going to pick? Uh, so women's World Cup, I've been watching that, and uh, I just have to say, so the U.S. women are out as of now. Um, that game, they lost it on Sunday and it's Monday. Uh, so I guess that was yesterday. Anyway, um, you, you just can't complain about a game that you lose. And, and by the time this comes out, I'm sorry, but the spoilers are just not spoilers anymore. You lose to <laughs> penalty kicks after five penalty kicks for each team. They were still tied. And so they went to sudden death penalty kicks. And so it was the seventh pair of penalty kicks where the US lost it and the goalkeeper actually saved the like she she hit the ball 
up into the air and it just had this wonky spin on it where it came back down inside the goal. And and it still looked like she had like bounced it out of the goal. Like they had to go back to the replay to make sure that it was a goal that had crossed the line. So, um, and the U.S. had dominated the whole game. So it was sad to see him lose. But you, you know, when it was down to that, it, if you're going to lose, yeah, lose that way. Um, That's an interesting point. You know, whether or not you want to lose like on on like on a dagger to the heart or you know uh like lead yeah. the entire game and then somehow lose or whatever i'm not sure that's <laughs> that's better well that's a good question for, for me it was especially and and i'll i could go into this for forever but i'm not going to so watching the u.s play portugal in the group phase they did not show up right they came out of that with a tie um it was it was a very frustrating game to watch because the U.S. team is way better than what they showed up as, and and I had actually my rule is not to get on social media until I, I watch the game because a lot of times it'll spoil it. And so when I turned on the game, I had broken my rule and I knew that the U.S. had lost the game, but I didn't know the details. And so I assumed that they had just showed up the way they showed up in Portugal and just got kicked around the field. And it turned out that wasn't the case. And my deal is, is if you're going to lose, make an awesome showing. And they definitely did that. So um, anyway, uh, can't be disappointed about that game, except for that we didn't win and we were the better team. So anyway, it'll be interesting. Uh, I'm still rooting for England. So Italy got out in group phase. So those are the teams that I usually pull for. So yeah, so that's my other pick. I took way too long doing that. Um, I'm also working on podcasting for programmers. If you go to Top End Devs, um, you can see that under our, um, I think it's under meetups right now. Um, I'm trying to find a better name for it because it's really going to be more of a mastermind uh, group coaching kind of thing. Um, that you can join up and just pay per month to be to have it be part of your deal. So anyway, um, keep an eye out on that. TopEndDevs.com slash podcasting. And uh, yeah, I'll just, stop talking because I've already picked way too much because I love soccer. Um, Eviatar, what are your picks? Yeah, you just said meetup and this reminded me of something. Um, I've just been to a very extraordinary meetup, um, a community meetup here in Israel. Um, it's called Take a Hike um, by someone mm-hmm. called uh, Nir Kaufman. I spoke at that meetup and this is like, I think first of its kind, um, like second in this community, but um off-road meetup. So we all meet uh, up north in the country um, and we give our tech talks with the audience, with the live audience. And then we set up tents and we go to sleep in those tents. And in the morning, we go to an SUV ride um, up a mountain, um, make breakfast on the top of the mountain, um, which is pretty awesome. Uh, And then we went down um, after a few hours uh, to hike in a water trail. It was really, really fun. It was pretty much all, it was the first, uh, first kind of experience like that I've ever had. And it was an awesome way to connect with the community. Um, I really enjoyed this one. So this is just because you mentioned a meetup. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the second pick I had... Before oh, you yeah. go to that... That sounds awesome. I just, I yeah. just need to mention that uh, Neil Kaufman is indeed an amazing guy. Uh, mm-hmm. Used to be a colleague of mine at Next Insurance. 
uh, and uh, that we really should need that. I really need to get him to be a guest on our podcast. He's, he's an yeah, amazing we've person. we've had him on some of the shows before because I know I've talked to him. Yeah, probably on on the Angular. I think show. it was on the Angular show. Yep. Yeah, he's he's one of the thought leaders in the Angular community. Yeah, yeah and Nir is amazing. Um, and my, so this was really, really fun. And the second pick is just because you mentioned it's before, uh, Dan, uh, is my talk from the React Next, um, conference, which I talk about building React context from scratch in vanilla JavaScript. It's already on YouTube. I'm sharing it with you. And also, if you want to meet me, uh, anytime I'm traveling this year, I'm going to Germany to speak at Code Talks in September. I'm going to be in Full Stack Europe in Belgium and International GS Conference in Singapore in December. So any of those, if you want to meet me, I'm going to be there. Good deal. Good for you. Yeah. Some of those sound way fun too. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap it up here. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming. Till next time. Next up.